0: Go Into the death and resurrection of your Son Jesus Christ, you turn us from the old life of sin. Grant that we being reborn to new life in Him may live in righteousness and holiness all our days through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Be seated. Alright. So this is always about it. the First Sunday of Categesis, and I've got a lot to do, uh, and we might do a few catechism questions, but I'm sure we'll do some. Uh, but first order of business is, uh, uh, I'm sorry that these are- Um, let's just say a word about what catechesis is. Um, does anybody have any, any thoughts on catechesis, what it might mean? Oh, it's a very exciting thing. <laughs> um, catechesis refers to the church's um, instruction uh, and, and formation of new believers and old believers um, in the ways of believing, in the ways of praying, and the way of acting. Um, catechesis was, is actually, catecheo is a biblical word. Um, it occurs in the New Testament in several places. Um, and, it, and it refers to um, instruction primarily. But it also has a kind of interesting connotation in that um, the way that you, that word is used refers to a kind of resounding. Um, and one of the great catechists in the church's history, Cyril of Jerusalem, says uh, to his catechumens. Uh, you know, the Word, by uh, this he means the Word of God, uh, resounded in you as in an empty place. The understanding that's brought here is that uh, those coming to faith for the first time are empty vessels. Um, they have no truth in them. Uh, they are empty. And what happens when you speak into an empty cave? You say,
1: hello! And what does it say?
0: It's hello! <laughs> does the cave have the capacity to say Hello! Does, does the catechumen have the capacity to, to, to respond in faith in the themselves? Not yet, but truth resounds because we were made for it. Um, so this is the understanding which the fathers have of this, this work of catechesis. Um, and through the centuries, this work has, has more or less uh, gone through um, several phases uh, to get us to where we are now where this, this practice is almost entirely and so, uh, I'm, I'm a nerd about catechesis, I'll just admit that straight up and just say that uh, it has been so often lacking and so often needed, and we're in a time in the church's life where uh, people are not instructed by and large in the doctrines which the church proclaims. And furthermore, and often worse, words, um, people are not instructed in ways of praying, uh, in ways of, of, of living. So that's the aim of this course. We're going to look at three major things. We're going to look at the creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments. It's all very simple. Um, And one of the reasons it's all very simple is that um, uh, we want to lay in this class a foundation. Um, And who is the foundation? (laughs) The foundation of Jesus Christ. Um, What happens if you build a house on a foundation that's lacking? That's not up to snuff. Yeah, you saw it. <laughs> Have you built a house before? <laughs> so it's, it's, if you build a house on a foundation that's cracked, or that isn't thick enough, or that isn't strong enough, what happens? No matter how brilliantly you design the house, it will collapse. And so one of the works of Catechesis is to build very simple, but very firm and very strong foundation upon which the rest can be built. Now, some of you say, I've been a Christian my whole life. I've been learning the scriptures. I've been doing all these things. Well, wonderful. Um, Catechesis can serve as as a means of, um, first of all, interacting with what our church teaches um, in a very simple way. Um, And that's primarily through the catechism, which has been uh, authorized by the bishops to be taught. Um, You have kind of a a nice advantage in that um, I was on the committee that wrote the catechism and then drafted the catechism, and so I can answer your questions. minutiae questions about it like, you know, I did do it that way? Not another way, but please hold those for afterwards um, and and, uh, and I can also uh, uh, say emphatically that um, many people have found this to just be a very, very, very helpful exercise and just kind of getting back to the basics for a time. Um, even though, and I've had Former provost at Baylor take catechesis and say, that was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've had uh, professors uh, at Baylor say, that was amazing. Um, And so, so, not because I'm so good at it, but just because uh, to get back to the basics for a time is really, really, really wonderful. And especially in a time in which so many churches have just forgotten to teach the basics. And so everybody's an expert, and then no one's instructed in those simple things. Usually, and, and uh, usually the church's history of catechesis has served to be pre-baptismal instruction. So prior to baptism, people were instructed for a period of time, and then they would make various commitments at each level. Um, that's something that uh, many, I mean, most of you are baptized, I'm sure if you're not, you'll let me know about that, um, and this can serve as great instruction prior to baptism. Um, for many people, you're already baptized, and what you're doing is you're saying, well, how... These Anglicans are often very strange people, and I'm not sure that I really like them that much. But here I am, <laughs> surprising anyway, surprising myself by being here. And uh, and and maybe you say after three four months, you know, I'm still going. I'm just getting up in the morning on Sundays. oh, I think I might as well go to Canada, Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and you find that it's interesting, and you find that it's that it's helpful to you, and so you make. The the first day of catechesis i expect really nothing of you. Uh, it's just to say you're here you're glad you're here and, uh, and i do expect that over time um, you, you might decide that you want to make a deep commitment to that and usually that that results in uh, people saying i really want to join up and i'd like to be confirmed with the bishop comes. So that'll be in april of this year and uh, i would open that up as a possibility too but that's something you can pray about later it uh, at Christ Church, we, uh, we are very intentional about saying that uh, we don't push people to make commitments before they're really ready to do so. Um, and in the meantime, we're just come and enjoy and make hard things. <laughs> maybe you might even find a servant of ministry or something like that. And that's okay. That's something that's to be encouraged. Um, to say a little bit about Christ Church and, and why we're here today, Um, Christ Church was started about nine years ago in in living rooms and and various other places of Baylor faculty and staff who wanted to see uh, the the planting of an Anglican church in the city of Waco and uh, and it went through various iterations and uh, I came here in March of 2014 as the first resident planter. Um, We had about 25 people at that point, maybe 30 at most, and, uh, and began that work, and, and I began that work. Uh, and, uh, and a year and a half later, we launched, meaning we went to a meeting every Sunday, and we've met in various places, like the Dr. Pepper Museum, and uh, the old Hoffman Banana Building, which is now owned by Live Oak School, and a bunch of other places, and uh, about, um, well, a little more than a year ago, we had the opportunity to buy this church, this old Lutheran church, and so that's where we are today, And uh, renovated it, and we moved it on Palm Sunday of this past year, and uh, it's a really it's been a, a great treat to be here, uh, but it is an old church building, so things like the air conditioner was designed right around the time the 57 Chevy was also designed, and so it works about like that, and uh, so, you know, we're having to be patient in this place, and, uh, and really see it as a, as a gift, and, and, uh, and, and ask God to do the rest, so that's the, that's the key all right, so let's dive into the captain. Uh, we're going to begin at question 19. And every year, I start on question 19, and people ask, why are you starting on question 19? And the answer is that the beginning 18 questions are very good, and they're very important, and you should read them, and you should jump into them, but they are for um, people who are coming, it is an evangelistic tool, um, and it's meant to be for people who have almost never been to a church before, and here you are, and maybe that's you, and maybe you should read that, and uh, if you'd like to, I can meet up with you and talk about it. Um, but we jump in at question 19, because that's where uh, the content of the catechism formally begins. The first section of the catechism, or in this case the second section, deals with um, the Apostles' Creed. Does anyone know, or has read, or, or recited the Apostles' Creed before? There are never you. Okay, good. Um, and for many people coming into a church like this, it's the first time they've even heard there was such a thing as a creed. Um, and that's great, and you'll, you'll learn all about it. Um, for many people, a creed is a new thing. Um, you've grown up in churches where you've said, we have no creed but Christ. <laughs> in many places, the churches have said, we don't need a creed, we have the Bible, that's enough, it's sufficient, that's all we could ever need. Um, But as Anglicans, and indeed as as Catholic Christians, um, we look to the creed to be a helpful summary of scriptural teaching. And so, uh, there's that. But let's jump in. One of the things we do in catechesis is uh, I read the question, and you all read the answer. And it can seem like a silly thing to do, and I just want to encourage you to be as silly as possible. Uh, because, Because one of the things that happens in this exchange is that this can often become like, I'm your teacher, I'm your professor, and you're a student, and you're passive, and you just kind of soak in all the information. That's bad pedagogy. Um, good pedagogy assumes that there's going to be an interaction, and the catechism facilitates that, that interaction. So you all ready? Okay. What is a creed? A creed is a statement of faith. The word creed comes from the Latin credo, which means I believe. Okay, so far so good, yes? A creed is is... Quite simply, just a statement of faith. Um, And uh, Christians have had creeds through the centuries. Indeed, there are uh, things within the New Testament that actually function like creeds. Um, uh, If there are any New Testament scholars among us, and I think there's one at least, uh, you know that there are certain sections of the scriptures that, uh, that have this kind of creedal material And and these serve to state clearly and in easily memorizable sections um, what the core teaching of the church is, and these have developed over time. What is the purpose of the creeds? The purpose of the creeds is to declare and safeguard God's truth about himself, ourselves, and creation as God has revealed in the Holy Scripture. Okay, so the purpose of the creeds is twofold. It's to do two main things. There are two verbs here. The first is to declare. So the creeds state something emphatically. Would you agree with that? That's that's, that's what to declare means. I know we're we're not big on declarative sentences these days. We like to kind of finish everything with a question mark and just ask a bunch of questions. But the creeds are declarative. They, They move forward from a central conviction. What's the second verb? It's to safeguard. Um, you may know and you may be familiar with the fact that uh, through the centuries, uh, Christian teaching has come under attack, both from within and from without. Um, there have been those uh, who, have, who have undermined Christian teaching. Uh, we call them heretics, um, and it's not a derogatory term. It's just to say uh, uh, you, you lean on your own understanding more than uh, that, that teaching of Scripture. Um, there are also those who, who try to lead the church astray, to believe various things, to practice certain things. And so we, we know that uh, the truth of Scripture needs to be safeguarded. Um, and we see this in the New Testament itself, don't we? I mean, Paul speaks regularly about the need to preserve the truth of the gospel against error. And so the creed serves in that regard. But what's the truth about It's right there in the text. (laughs) These aren't true questions. God's truth about himself. Okay, so that's the first thing that they say. The creeds speak about God. But the creeds also say something about us. Um, And and we can often be very confused about who we are. Would you agree with that? We get philosophically confused. We get uh, get confused in a wide variety of ways. And you might might notice this in your own life, and I encourage you to notice it, that there are times when you're just unsure about who you are. Um, That's that's in the nature of a fallen human being to be unsure about themselves, to not quite know who we are. And also the truth about creation. We'll see more about how that's the case. And not just any old truth, but what? The truth is God was revealed in Scripture. Um, so the creeds, and this is the thing you've got to get, the creeds are not anti-biblical. Okay? What are they? They're biblical. They're summaries of that biblical thing. Um, and those who drafted the creeds and those who spoke of the creeds and those who, uh, who initially introduced the creeds um, have always said that uh, these are taken, these, these, this truth is taken, straight from the truth. All right. What does belief in the creed signify? Belief in the creed signifies acceptance of God's revealed truth and the intention to live by it. Um, Christian teaching is not something uh, which is sort of figured out in the mind. Um, this is often a great mistake as we think, oh, I'm going to put pen to paper, I'm going to open my Bible, and I'm going to figure out what the truth is. I'm going to get it all sorted out by next week, I promise you. Has anybody tried that some of you are very studious, and you're like, yes, I've tried that. How well did it go? It was terrible. <laughs> why, why is this? Well, it's, it's a simple thing. It's that understanding doesn't lead us to faith, does it? Doesn't. Faith leads us to understanding. Um, some of you have, have been associated with the, with the Baylor Honors College, and all over that place is a, a, a Latin phrase, and what does it translate to? faith seeks understanding. Um, so we approach the Scriptures, and we come to the Scriptures first with faith, um, and I would say, uh, if, if, if there are any of you here today who are not Christians, uh, you, you've undertaken an act of faith simply by coming here today, um, that you're here for, for a purpose, um, that you're here to seek that understanding, um, and it is faith that's offered. What we do instead in the, in the accept God's truth. Um, and that is to say that, that um, when when one comes to the church and when one comes to the scriptures, um, we come seeking that faith. We don't come to try to figure it out. We don't come as an intellectual exercise. We come um, hungry for truth. We come seeking out the truth. Um, and we come to accept it. It also signifies, and so when we when we state agreed, and we do this on Sundays and we do it a number of other days, um, it states our intention to live by that revealed truth as it is revealed in scripture. And that simply states I'm getting a lot of feedback, but it's okay. Is it okay? It also shows, and I think this is very key, not just that we're sort of stating truth. But they were saying, I intend to live in this way. I intend to live according to this. Um, and that's, a, that's a very, that's often something that's lost. Um, there have been a good many people who have said, well, you know, just because I say the creed doesn't mean that I intend to live by it. I mean, I'm just, I'm just saying. And there are many people in, in the last several decades who have said, well, you know, I say the creed, but I don't... Know On the incarnation, in which he, uh, in which he states that that uh, when we say, "I believe in." God. there? Um, it's not that we kind of all have my faith and your faith and you have faith and I have faith. And we sort of glom it all together and have something wonderful. That's not quite how it works. Okay. Which creeds does the church acknowledge? The church acknowledges the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. Uh, these three creeds, and if you're unfamiliar with any of them, um, you can certainly find them. I believe the Athanasian Creed is included in the back of the Catechism uh, for reference, um, and we actually say the Athanasian Creed here at Christ Church on Trinity Sunday, so come June you get to enjoy that, um, but it was a while ago, so it will be a while till then. Um, these three creeds uh, form uh, the basis of our faith, um, and they are uh, emphatically we're emphatically clear that we sent to these creeds, um, and, um, and they are the creeds of, of the ancient church. Uh, the Nicene Creed dates back to the 4th century. The Apostles' Creed dates back to the 4th and 5th centuries. It's a baptismal creed originating um, in, the, in the East and coming into the West. Um, and then the Athanasian Creed originates, we think, in Spain in about the 7th century. So all of these are ancient. They're all stated by the undivided church before there was multiple churches but one church, Um, and this is to say that uh, uh, it was held by all Christians, these three. Why do you acknowledge these creeds? I acknowledge these creeds with the church because they are grounded in Holy Scripture and are faithful expressions of its teaching. Um, Replete. Uh, In in all the, and I mean, sometimes these were actual battles that took place about these creeds. Uh, if you read about uh, about all the controversies in the 4th century regarding the Nicene Creed, uh, you'll know that um, one of the things that's, that's a big uh, spot of contention is not whether the creed itself in, in, a, in and of itself expresses Christian teaching, but whether or not the creed in and of itself is biblical. Uh, and the question is, does this adequately state scriptural teaching? And uh, through the centuries, we know that uh, yes, the creeds do state uh, scriptural teaching. All right. Why should you know these creeds? I should know these creeds because they state the essential beliefs of the Christian faith. Um, and this is why I would encourage you, if you have not yet done so, to memorize at least the Apostles' Creed. Um, in the old days in the church, it was recognized that one being baptized, maybe as a child, um, would be required to memorize the Apostles' Creed, and the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments. Um, In the very ancient church, we know that uh, new Christians being baptized were, the the creed was recited to them out loud, and they were taught to kind of parrot it back until they got it memorized. Um, And then they were taught to practice it before they were baptized. And in many cases, uh, they were required to parrot it back as they were being baptized or before they were baptized. Um, the Apostles' Creed is itself a baptismal creed. Um, in the West, this is, this is what it served as. Uh, meaning that um, it is this, the, the ascent to the Apostles' Creed is wrapped up in baptism. Um, we've not been good about this in the American church today, right? We sort of say, uh, let's go out to the river and get you baptized. And there's there's almost no uh, statement of faith outside of the kind of personal testimony in a lot of places. Um, but in the ancient church, it was not so. You were given the teaching of the church in the form of a creed, and it was and it was literally and this is the word they used. It was handed to you as a tradition, which you were to hand back. Um, and that was how it went. Um, in many cases, people did give personal testimonies, and that's not to. to that at all, but it's to say that what was essential was the the teaching of this creed. So let's all stand and we'll we'll say the Apostles' Creed. What is the Apostles' Creed? The Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Okay. I think we can continue on. We've got 15 minutes. Have a seat. Oh, we're going to get this done by December, uh, if we keep on. Usually what happens in these things, and I want to encourage this, is, uh, and, and I haven't done this yet, but I should have earlier. You know, if at any point you say, I am totally unclear about that, i got to stop you. Okay? Catechesis is meant to be an environment where I not only am happy with that, I want to encourage that. Um, because here's the deal. If you have a question, the chances are that somebody else has the same question mulling in their mind, uh, and, and they need to be encouraged to, to ask it but you're the one who's got the guts, so you ask the question. Um, and ask it on behalf of the whole. Um, I would also say as well, that catechesis is meant to be an exchange. Uh, unlike a kind of classroom setting where I teach you information, and you kind of, you know, there's no test <laughs> That's not how it's gonna work. Uh, what's supposed to happen is that, is, that uh, is again, going back to this idea of resounding, where uh, you might say, hey, I've got a story about that. Does anyone want to, sh-? you can share it uh, if you're willing to be uh, that vulnerable. Uh, so there it is. Should we, go ahead. Yeah, wonderful. <laughs> That's a great way to do it, yeah. Yeah, it's in your head, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, in a lot of places, creeds have been sung um, in churches, and uh, we do not sing the creed at Christ Church. Maybe we'll do that someday when, uh, when we have a choir or something. we can get that going. Uh, but, but the idea being that, that what you sing, you, you learn to memorize that much more quickly. All right, should we move on to the Holy Scripture section, or do you have a question? Ah. Uh, yes, I can. Um, later, when we get to that section of the catechism, she's asking about that phrase "rose again," uh, um, and and it's often kind of strange that we would say "again" because it seems like he's rising for the first time, um, and and that's it's just a derivative phrase, basically. Okay. All right, should we go on the holy holy scripture section? What is holy scripture? Holy scripture is God's word written given by the Holy Spirit through prophets and apostles as the revelation of God and his acts in human history, and is therefore the church's final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Okay, so this is a lot to break down. But when we speak of the Holy Scriptures, we are speaking of, of God's word. That, that assumes a lot. Okay? So what does it mean to say that God has a word? Communicate so there's understanding. Okay, that's part of it. The possibility of relationships, so that's very good. We're getting into the idea of the Trinity, yes. That, that uh, God eternally begets a word, is eternally generating a word, yes. Okay. Who is who? Yeah, Jesus. Yes. Um, so, so, God is constantly, constantly speaking, right? Um, and there's never been a time when God is not speaking. Um, you know, it shouldn't surprise us when we open when we open the Book of Genesis, we see God speak. Um, God is continually speaking. This is, this is how it works. Constantly begets a word. Uh, so more about that later. But God's word written meaning that uh, God gives his word over to people actual human beings flesh and blood human beings who write that down um, and we'll say more about what that means it is given by the Holy Spirit so here we're going to have a this is a another Trinitarian moment yes this this uh, this third person of the Trinity which we'll say more about when we get to the Trinity section um, it's given by the Holy Spirit by um, by the way, this word "spirit" refers to. Have you, ever, have you ever like heard that word and how it sounds? Spirit. You ever had a tire with a slow leak? Okay. <laughs> or maybe a fast leak. <laughs> it's this horrifying sound. That's it. All is it. All comes together in that way. That word is meant to is meant to convey uh, this this breath, this idea of, of invisible air, uh, of invisible breath. Um, when we say that the Holy Scriptures are inspired, that's what it means, like breathed. Indeed in the New Testament, uh, Paul says, all Scripture is what? God breathed. Uh, it's given by the Holy Spirit through a, through prophets and apostles as the revelation of God and His acts in human history. So, under, so wrapped up in this understanding of Holy Scripture is that God is revealing Himself and has revealed himself in ways that are authoritative. Has revealed himself acting in human history. Um, probably, I would venture to guess, that most people today, in America at least, are some form of a deist. You know what that is, yes? Studied American history, you know there are deists in American history. These are, these are wild people who believe that, uh, that God just sort of uh, creates the world, throws it out into the cosmos, Just leave the one. This is not the God of Christianity, (laughs) for sure, okay? (laughs) Because we Christians actually believe that God has acted in the most most tremendous and spectacular ways possible in human history. Um, Most specifically in entering human history himself. And is therefore, because of this revelation in human history, and is, therefore, the Church's final authority in all matters of faith and practice. And this is an emphatic statement. It's meant to say that uh, when there are um, questions in the Church about matters of teaching, matters of doctrine, matters of divine revelations, what's what's the authority here? Is it me? Is it some other human being? No. It's it's Holy scripture. Now, of course, and I will admit it immediately, Uh, Scripture has to be interpreted, yes? And who interprets it? We do. Um, But we do so uh, uh, in a a specific way, and we'll say more about that in later questions. What books are contained in Holy Scripture? The 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament form the whole of Holy Scripture, which is also called the Bible and canon. A, A Bible, if you have one in front of you, a Bible is simply... The word we use for a collection of books, uh, as we might say, a book of books, um, and it's those 30, 39 books of the Old Testament those 27 books of the New Testament. This is what we call the canon, and canon in Greek simply means list. Um, does anyone know that? Canon means list. <laughs> um, and and uh, it's not entirely clear, although, although the structure is very much there uh, throughout uh, the first three centuries in the ancient church, there's, there's a clarity about what that canon is becoming. And we can say a bit about how that happens. Um, but, but that New Testament canon uh, is given by um, several means. Uh, one is to say, well, did an apostle write it? If the answer is yes, go on to question two, right? It's, it's to say that all of the New Testament uh, is, is, operates under apostolic authority. I would also say that one of the things that happens... Very early on is that there's there's a question about well you know who's got this text is it just one church in Ephesus that has it or has it been shared throughout the whole known Church and the fact that many Christian churches have this text in their in their set leads it to be accepted as part of the canon. Um, well, how does that happen? Well, you say. You know, it's like this, it's like, uh, you know, it's the same way that, that you have certain books on the recommendation of friends, Yes. guess. Um, and I would venture to guess that among some of your friend groups, everybody has that book, right? It's very similar in the church's history. Everybody has this one, uh, because it's understood to be essential and important. Uh, the other question that's there is, is it read in church? I mean, most churches in the ancient world had had some kind of bookcase in the church from which they would draw text, and if it was in the bookcase, normally, um, it's, it's included in the canon, and over time, these lists become very clear. Um, the other thing that happens, too, that I find absolutely fascinating is this problem of, um, you know, when the authorities come knocking at the door and they want your holy text, what do you give them? Well, not the holy texts, right? What do you give them? You give them. Oh, here, take this Gnostic writing. We don't need it anymore. <laughs> um, it's like that. And that, that, that actually happened. Um, this is why uh, when we look at ancient, uh, at ancient uh, biblical manuscripts, we have thousands upon thousands of New Testament texts and very few of everything else. Uh, the New Testament texts pile high and everything else is just a few copies of this and a few copies of that and a few copies of that that just happened to survive. Do you see what's going on here? It's getting whittled down. It's getting clarified. All right. What is in the Old Testament? The Old Testament contains the record of God's creation of all things, mankind's original disobedience, God's calling of Israel to be his people, God's law, God's wisdom, God's saving deeds, and the teaching of God's prophets. The Old Testament points to Christ revealing God's intention to redeem and reconcile the world through Christ. So the Old Testament contains this record of God's acting uh, in the history uh, of of human people. Um, It also uh, is quite clear about our original disobedience. right? We read that in the opening chapters. Um, We read of God's calling of Israel to be his people. Um, We read about the law and the giving of the law, uh, we read about basically everything that leads up to Christ. Um, And that is, in essence, the Old Testament. What is in the New Testament? The New Testament contains the record of Jesus Christ's birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection and ascension, the church's earthly ministry, the teaching of the apostles, and the revelation of Christ's coming eternal kingdom. So the very first opening, opening sentences of the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew are the genealogy of Jesus, yes? Which should tell us something. It's not just boring. It's not just something you have to skip over. It's not the Jerusalem phone book. What is it? Okay. Here's the thing you gotta get. Jesus does not sort of appear uh, unrelated to history. He's not sort of, He doesn't sort of drop down out of a cloud and all of a sudden you've got a baby in a manger. How does he come? He's born into a family. Um, he's born in a specific history, in a specific place. Um, and this is related to it. This is related in the New Testament. Um, speaking of all of this, um, we read of Jesus' birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension. New Testament contains all of this. Um, We read about that church's most early ministry, and then we also know uh, from the scriptures the apostles' teaching as well. Um, We read in the Acts of the Apostles that the early Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, um, and that apostolic teaching is contained in scripture, Um, not only from Paul, but from Peter and John and others. We also read the revelation of Christ's coming kingdom, an eternal kingdom. Um, This is to say that that reading the New Testament, uh, you are pointed uh, not to the past alone, but what? Pointed to the future. Uh, Pointed to God's future uh, for us, which is held out to us in Christ. Uh, So uh, this is something that many many people are, are, uh, well... (laughs) I would say many people are hypersensitive to this. They are constantly looking for in Scripture what's that going to look like, um, and then there are many who just say, ah, eh, we don't know. <laughs> and there are those who read Scripture with an eye to um, to um, to know the things of God and to know um, to know of Christ's return. And that is simply to say that that we read Scripture with an eye towards redemption and towards the Completion of redemption, uh, which is ours in Christ. How are the Old and New Testaments related to each other? The Old Testament is to be read in the light of Christ, incarnate, crucified, and risen, and the New Testament is to be read in light of God's revelation to Israel. As Saint Augustine says, "The new is of the old written, concealed; the old is in the new revealed." Um, I love, I love this quote from Saint Augustine. Um, Here's, here's what often happens when, when people read the Old Testament. They read the Old Testament and they say, well, you know, all of this idea that Jesus Christ is to be found in the Old Testament, this ancient book which predates the Incarnation, is a bunch of hogwash. Uh, how could that possibly be? Well, you know, there's no there's no there's no conceivable way for that to happen. Uh, well, it, here's the problem. If you're a Christian, you believe in phenomena. That are unexplained by reason, yes. Okay, um, and so I would simply say, open yourself up to the understanding that the Old Testament contains Christ, who is the Word of God. Um, and and um, and time and again, we'll, uh, I'll have this experience of uh, being with people reading morning prayer, yes. And we we read from the Old Testament morning prayer every morning, and and I I have to say that. I regularly, as a Christian, meet Jesus in the Old Testament. Um, well, in the past few Sundays we've read of those wonderful accounts of, of manna being showered upon the people in the wilderness, yes? Um, and we think, oh, isn't it neat that God that God just sort of throws bread at the people in the wilderness, yeah? And he's like, that's really cool. Well, the church fathers actually envisioned Jesus above the people, casting down bread on them. That is Jesus behind the scenes, giving Himself to them. Um, this is a it's an incredible thing. Um, uh, uh, but this, we should also believe in this kind of typology because uh, the New Testament itself holds it. Yes, I mean, time and again in the New Testament. The, the writers of the New Testament look back to the Old and they say, here it is. Um, you know, they all follow the same supernatural rock and what? The rock was Christ. They see this happen over and over. Um, well, Jesus himself does this too, right? <laughs> you know, all seek a sign, but no sign shall be given to them except the sign of what? Jonah, of all things. Well, what's the sign? How's it work? Jonah's cast into the belly of a whale, how many days? Three days. And then what happens? He's spit up on the shore, he has a bit of a a moment, but ultimately he winds up preaching to the people of Nineveh and what happens? They all repent. So Jonah comes out of the belly of a whale after three days, he proclaims uh, this, this message of life to the world and what happens? People repent, they believe they're saved, right? This is wonderful. Um, well, what's the sign of Jonah in the New Testament? It's, the, it's Christ's death and resurrection. He, he goes down into the belly of the earth for three days and ascends, or, and, and is risen. And what does he do when he rises? He brings salvation. Okay? So here it is. This is, this is constant. Um, and, and I would just say, there's no reason not to read scripture in this way. This is a natural reading of scripture. It strikes us as strange because we're so terribly and almost uh, almost irreparably modern. Um, well, you know, it's just like, stop it. <laughs> Get yourself out of that for a time. Uh, read scripture in, a, in, a, in, a, in an ancient way. All right, what does it mean that Holy Scripture is inspired? Holy Scripture is God-breathed. For the biblical authors wrote under the guidance of God's Holy Spirit to record God's Word. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 uh, that all Scripture is God-breathed. And he's saying this to Timothy to remind him, to remind him, um, to proclaim the Scriptures. Why? There's a reason I don't stand in that pulpit Sunday after Sunday and talk about my opinions. My opinions will kill you, okay? My opinions are deadly. What should I stand in the pulpit and say? I should speak God's word. Which will give you life, yes? Okay. That's what's in it. That's that's essential. All scriptures God breathed. and it's useful. You look that up, you'll see useful for correction and all kinds of other actions within the church. Okay, let's move on. Well, this will be our last question for this morning. What does it mean that the Bible is the Word of God? Because the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, it is rightly called the Word of God written. God is revealed in his mighty works and in the incarnation of our Lord, but his works and his will are made known to us through the inspired words of Scripture. God has spoken through the prophets and continues to speak through the Bible today. This is to say that though the scriptures are are an ancient text, uh, we're we're reaching the point in in our history where the New Testament is getting to be 2,000 years old. Um, And Even the most, uh, in about 30 years, we'll be getting to the point where it is 2,000 years old, these these biblical texts. but because they're inspired, and inspired by the Holy Spirit, um, God continues to speak through Scripture in this way today. Why is that? Because the heart of our understanding of divine revelation is that God, um, rather than speaking a lot of mumbo-jumbo that's unrelated and uh, incoherent and incohesive, what do we say? is in fact one, that that God's word is united, Uh, meaning that God speaks uh, with a constancy that's difficult for us to understand. Why? Well, because, you know, what I said yesterday might not be what I say today. Uh, And the reason is that I'm a sinner, right? Um, what What I even believed yesterday might not be what I believe. Because often I get reptilian and I go kind of off, off the deep end and I, I sort of say things that are insane, right? Because I'm a sinner. Um, God is not like that. God. Um, God speaks with a continuity and, and, with, um, and with, a kind of, with a coherence. Um, and scripture records that. Scripture speaks that. Um, and his will and his works are made known to us in that way. So this is, this is the rather simple way to put it. Um, we meet God in Scripture, pure and simple. So if you want to meet God, where, what's the first place you can meet him? In Scripture. And this should teach us, and this should be very, should be very plain, um, to read Scripture. Um, uh, many of you may have grown up in traditions where reading Scripture was really important, right? Really important. And I want to encourage that. Uh, but also just to say um, that very often people grew up in traditions where you read Scripture to sort of get facts, um, to get uh, the right stuff. Well, that's important, but it's not the main thing. What's the main thing? Uh, to be God. To be God in Scripture. And I, I want to just point you to the liturgy and what we're about to do here shortly which is that uh, we read scripture in church. I know this is falling out of fashion in church today. Like, people don't read scripture in church anymore. And that's, that's lamentable. Uh, but we read tons of scripture in church. Um, and, and the apex of that is when the gospel book is, is, is processed down to this spot and is read right here. Uh, this is to say that in the gospels, um, we read of, of God meeting and coming, and, and really more of a, more us meeting him, the Word of God coming among us. Um, this is the apex of, of salvation history. Is to say that um, that, that uh, in the incarnation we meet the Word of God. And that's what we'll talk about next week when we talk about why Jesus Christ is called the Word of God. Um, but watch for that. The Gospel book comes down. Um, it's open. It's proclaimed. Um, there's quite a bit more pageantry surrounding it. Um, and that's important because it's supposed to draw your attention in. Um, so... Uh, about that next week. Are there any questions before we close? Go ahead. Sure. That's a good, that's a good question. So she's asking about the creeds and the Athanasian Creed refers to uh, Christ's descent into hell. Um, and and that the others do not well that's actually not entirely the case Uh, they're often translated as saying descended into hell Um, and the um, the meaning behind that is not apparent to us who think of hell as a place of eternal torment and condemnation what is instead being said in the creeds is that Christ descended to the place of the dead um, uh, to uh, um, Sheol to use the Hebrew word, um, and, and that is to say that uh, all ancient traditions or most ancient traditions believe uh, that there is such a thing as an underworld, um, and, and uh, to go there is not desirable at all. Um, but in the Jewish tradition, uh, uh, when you die, you go to the place of the dead, um, and especially in, in the Jewish um, uh, Jewish understanding of the resurrection of the dead. That's to say that, that Jesus goes to the place where resurrection is awaited um, and rises, um, you know, surprising everyone, essentially. Um, and that's, that's what's at the heart of that phrase. We should not read, Christ goes to a place of torment for sin. Um, we should read instead that Christ enters into death fully. That's what should be thought. Um, and that is, in fact, the, the scriptural teaching. Um, it's that um, Jesus died in every way, as you and I will someday die. Yes? Uh, without reservation. Um, dead is a doornail. Okay. That's what, that's what it says. Okay. That that it's not even just, and, and this is often a mistake that modern people make. It's not just to sort of say that his body died. Okay. It's to say he died. Okay. Um, and and the really shocking thing about what Christians teach about the death of Christ is that um, we teach that all of these properties translate. So, so, what do we say about the death of Jesus, who is God? That on the cross, God died. That God himself enters into human death in every way that we humans die. That's what's being said. Okay. So, we often read hell just because that's one of the ways that people have translated it. It's just, uh, it's, it's not helpful, and so, really, in some of the modern translations of the Apostles' Creed, we don't get hell that often as being what's used. So I want to say that to you. Okay. We'll talk more about that.